All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guests are the Turner Twins. The Turner Twins, Hugo and Ross Turner, are British adventurers who have undergone a host of pioneering expeditions to help people learn about our world using new technology and purposeful adventures. Together they have rode the Atlantic Ocean, climbed Mount Elbrus, attempted to trek the Greenland ice cap and have reached several poles of inescapability, including the Australian, North and South American, Iberian and most recently attempted to reach the Atlantic Pole of inescapability using a hydrogen-powered jolt. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You have this amazing life. You're, you know, you're hydrofolling, you're paragliding, but you're not just doing these things to say, look at me. You're educating people about the plight of the world and giving back. But for people who maybe don't recognize your names, how, how do you explain this amazing life you have? With difficulty. I think it's very difficult to tell people who you are. And, you know, if they say, oh, what do you do as a job? then you you know you you tick the boxes of adventurer um no one really knows what that is these days i don't think i don't think we really do because it's it just it's it can come in various different forms it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people um it certainly doesn't have to be outdoors related but um yeah i guess at the heart of well at the heart of who we are and why we do things you know we're always about learning about our world um, and trying to use technology to help us understand so that's really what drives us is actually getting back to the basics of what exploration was and adventure and is actually you know going out with a purpose to find something um, and understand something and do you guys think you were born at the right time? You know, that you were like me, you were born into a sort of remote place, that there was a few neighbours, you had like the great wilderness to explore. You yeah. know, we didn't have the internet, the TV, so we just, it made you kind of almost feral. Like we were out to like 11 o'clock at night causing mayhem and climbing rocks and stuff like that. You don't get that much nowadays with kids. Do you think that helped build this and that you had the brother bond as well? Did that help you guys yeah, become? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we, we keep, we, um, over the last couple of weeks, we've even been saying it that you know, we're 34 now. We both signed up to Facebook, this thing called Facebook, when we were 17, 18. And I think we were quite late to the table when it came up to signing to Facebook. But, you know, we didn't have social media. You didn't have social media when we were growing up in our teens. So we didn't really have any distractions. So, you know, we grew up in a beautiful part of the world down in um, Devon, um, at the, like, kind of the southwest end of the UK. And, 
you know, we had um, a national park called Dartmoor that's just big, open moorland. And that was really our entertainment. Uh, so we were very, very lucky. And I think, yeah, had we have been born in today's, I say today's world, you know, had we have grown up with social media, I think we would have been completely distracted. Uh, there must be a huge amount of pressure on kids these days to, you know, um, have an online and an offline world running in parallel, whereas all we were doing was going up onto Dartmoor, camping, building dens in the local woods, building fires, making dampers, and, you know, just enjoying the great outdoors. And for us, it wasn't alien. It wasn't it wasn't an arena which we were trying to impress anyone. It was just where we both felt incredibly comfortable, happy, distracted. And, you know, it's some of our... Um, our fondest memories were, you know, building dens. We made some epic dens um, <laughs> in the woods below us. And yeah, you know, I, I do think that we are probably the last generation to, you well, know. I think, I think we were the or are the last generation to grow up without social media. But I think there's so much pressure on kids these days to document everything for social media. Whereas Hug just said a minute ago, we went out there because there wasn't anything else to do and we really enjoyed it. Whereas nowadays, kids and adults, whatever they do, um, particularly in the outdoors, seem to almost document it to say, look, I'm still grounded. I'm still able to get out and about outside the the office. And I think it's a, it is a strange world we live in. And I, yeah. I don't think we, you know, it's always hindsight, isn't it? Are we born in the wrong generation? Yes, I think... Um, I think our maybe our values and what we like doesn't involve too much technology. Like we like the outdoors, we enjoy being away from the technology, but we still do use it. And even if we were born, you know, twenty um, twenty years later, um, I think we'd still be going outdoors. Um, we'd just probably be documenting it a little bit more. I mean, like I remember you discussing in one interview where you said you know, that your niece can take apart an iPhone, but, you know, could you pick um, pitch a tent? I mean, I came from that generation where, you know, you were out gathering, like we had sheep when I was younger. So you'd be out walking the hills and, you know, like the hill walking stuff was simple. We would camp over the lock at weekends and stuff like that. It was just accepted. And nowadays it's kind of like, well, what's my clout? What's my following? What's my like? It's really, yeah. it's, it's really turned sad lately. I loved how your mom gave you this mentality of like dream on, you know, like it, how we always assume it's a negative thing, but you guys took that as a sort of positive yeah. a way of like saying, throwing the shackles off and going, okay, then we, we, yeah. we want to do this. Let's do it. And you came up with this epic statement in an interview where you said, after a few pints, we decided we were just going to roll the Atlantic. Hmm. Yeah, that we was, um, that was our big first step into the unknown i mean we, that was when we were at loughborough university and a couple of friends greg and adam who were on our course were big rowers i, I was rowing at the time uh, ross had never rowed before um and we didn't really have much in the way of vision or aspirations for post uni life uh, you know what we were going to do where we wanted to work and yeah, it was in the local pub. I can't even remember. Rossi, do you remember the pub? It was when the student triangle, whichever one it was. The pageant? 
The Pageant Arms. That's it the was one. the Pageant, and uh, yeah, but we we were literally just chatting, and then I remember the next day Ross came up to me and had signed up for it, or, or I think we'd registered our interest and put some money down, which wasn't very much, but and that was that was my first and lasting memory of suddenly going from a conversation to right well we better do it and ignorance is bliss on that one i think <laughs> but this is this is a time when the atlantic row was very different to nowadays nowadays there's the documentary i think it's on discovery on national geographic channel um every rowing team has quite a big presence media pr it's a big project these days mm-hmm. but back in the day when we first started thinking about it in 2010 the only real way you knew about these projects was from a little bit of Facebook, media, TV. But I remember reading it and watching it when Ben Fogel and James Cracknell did their row in 2007. Yeah, um, they were the first ones I'd ever seen to do it as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I w- I've got this wonderful book by The Times. Um, it's called Explorers in Photography. And it goes through six of the environments mountains, polar, jungle, etc. And one of them is oceans. And it tells you the history and some of the images from the original people who rode the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And they did it back in, well, there's a couple that did it in 1890s. And then it wasn't done again until the 1970s. Um, But yeah, it was kind of 97 was the very first rowing race. Um, organized and then it was every two years after that so there hadn't been many additions it's only since the um i say the incorporation of the big sponsors the talisker whiskey atlantic challenge which it is now known um it wasn't until kind of that kind of money and media behind it exploded it into what we see it now but when we when we thought about it it was actually very very small and almost parochial in um size because I love how that when you're doing it, you're not just doing a, you know, look at me, I've done this, uh, you know, I'm going to stick this out for likes. You guys are going and telling a story or you're, you're educating people on like how the world is and the plight of like plastic and the oceans. And, you know, you're working with like universities and other places to, to gather the data on things. To, so, you know, it, there's far more like value to what you guys are doing. What do you think about these kind of, I hate the phrase, but rites of passage, you know, like these little knobs who come out of university go and do before they go and get their job. You know, the ones who think, oh, I've got to do this to raise money for charity. But it's not like they're just doing it to show off to friends. They're not doing it to actually benefit the planet like you guys are doing. Yeah. I, have, have they become too commercial, some of these things? Um, Have they become too commercial? I think they've become too boring, Mm. mainstream i think yeah i I don't think it it doesn't bother me that people go and do these challenges whether it's let's just take for example because these are the ones that seem to get all the media attention and therefore get the sponsors is going to the trekking to the south pole doing the last degree and climbing everest or kilimanjaro or some other mountain fine they can go and do that but i wish they'd have a bit more creativity about it in terms of why they're doing it, what's the actual challenge? You know, bringing bringing it back down to back back to that purpose of actually, yeah, what is the benefit of doing it? You know, and it does. 
there been these, there been a lot of like sorry, what I was meaning was like people who do like skydives, you know, or they do bungee jumps, and it's just like because my friends are doing it or it look cool, you know. Whereas they're they're not doing it because it benefits anything in a way, and I think that's you know these things have become almost like uh, all right, we're going to do that, and that's the closest people get to venture. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's important for. Um, people to do these trips, whether it's a bungee jump, whether it's a skydive, whether it's a marathon, because people have got to find their own boundaries. And we, and we gave a talk um, a couple of nights ago um, to a wonderful group of people. And we were talking about this going, you know, talking about limitations, personal limitations of what you think is achievable. And I think for us, when we started, we played in our garden, at home, on Dartmoor. And then as we got older, the boundaries of that garden got larger because we're allowed to go up onto the hills and then we're allowed to go up onto Dartmoor and then we were able to do multi-day adventures. And for some people, I think a skydive, yes, is, I say, as simple, as safe and as refined as it is on paper. See, most people who do skydives do it for charity or do it for some purpose, not personally, but... You know, there is that cause. But yes, I did for mine. I did mine for the Marie Curie. (laughs) So I I can't say anything. But it's but now you know your limits, your limitations, and you know you can do it. So what's the next challenge? And I think that's what it's all about. It's once you tick off enough boxes and you push your boundary far enough, you then start going. Well, actually, can we do it for something else? Is there a better purpose for that? And I think that's where most people stop. They find that boundary. They may or may not like it, but they don't have the complete, um, I say, professional adventurer um, credentials, and they, you know, they carry on with their normal life. But you've uh, also the, the, you got the other side of the, the the coin there, which is if they go and do these small charity macho adventure activities, if that does encourage them or leads them on to more adventures hopefully that might lead them to go off on more adventures which have a bit more purpose so yeah you know everyone's got to start somewhere and if it encourages one person to go on and do more adventures and hopefully you know there might be a chance that they actually have you know, some purpose to their future adventures, then it's probably beneficial. But yeah, it's, um, you know, it's also at the end of the day, if it's fun, can you blame anyone? Oh, I mean, see, that was one of my questions was, how do we take people who maybe are only introduced to like, say the Duke of Edinburgh Award, to, you know, where they have the, like the, the camping trip at the end and they go, I mean, you know, how do we entice more people to do it? Because, a lot of times you'll have a parent kickback or, you know, you'll yeah. be forced into a career like it's society dictates here to get a safe office job. You're not, yeah. you know, don't be silly about some of the stuff. I mean, and you guys have just made your playground bigger and bigger. You've made the world your playground. How do we entice people and get them to just take a step into adventure and learn? I, I think it's, it's get, you know, encouraging people to be creative with it. Um, I think the two biggest things that we're currently playing with, and I think is a, uh, I want to say a quality or a, 
a fortune that we have is that we're quite creative so we can come up with concepts and trips that are quite conceptual and quite you know non-mainstream i.e the poles of an accessibility which we're trying to reach um yet we can offer it um to sponsors and brands and media in a way that it's easily digestible and translatable to an audience um so it's it's having that creativity with a purpose and i think if we can encourage youngsters to have a bit more creativity and open the world up to them and saying well actually you don't need to go and climb everest um if you want to be a mountaineer you don't have to go to the south pole if you want to go and um you know freeze your nuts off for months on end you know what about you know reading up on your history and going and living in you know northern alaska you know with in some inuit communities and learning what they're doing or because essentially you're getting the same experience you're you know surviving in a in a wilderness area yet you've got the culture so i think it's trying to pull in creativity and open the world to these youngsters and then obviously try and getting that try to get that purpose in because as soon as you've got that purpose it does exactly what it says on the tin it gives you purpose it gives a brand um the media that might want to follow you it gives everybody a reason to follow you other than just your personal challenge or your personal vendetta it's actually okay they've got a purpose so there's going to be something in it for me and i think if you can blend it with the creativity side and go wow that's mad i didn't realize that you know there were pyramids in the polar regions or you know something that like that then then i think that's where it gets quite interesting i i certainly think that um kids should be encouraged to get off laptops and phones and out into the out into the great outdoors whether that's a park whether that's a river walk because once you get used to an area and a place and you create memories i think that's that's a starting point for stepping out into the outdoors i think so many people love the efficiency of the 21st century there's food in the fridge there's more entertainment and tv you can possibly think about on a television you've got a comfy sofa and you can create an atmosphere that's perfect for what you like i think if we can get kids and adults but particularly the younger generation outside i think that's where you can then encourage them because then they start creating memories there's a reason why people like going to the pub they like getting in a car and doing short or long haul trips it's because it's efficient they create that um that memory going oh you know this this is actually quite enjoyable i don't mind doing this i think if we can just create some beautiful memories some fun happy memories whatever they are long or short i certainly think people will come back to that almost primal instinct of it does feel good to get outside. And I would probably say it's a bit like training for a marathon. The thought of doing it is a lot worse than the actual doing it. You know, when you say to somebody, oh, let's go outside in the rain, they're like, well, actually, I'd probably like to stay in. But if you do go outside, you do get wet and you come back in, or you go outside when it's super cold, it's snowy or it's windy and you come back in, you just feel so much better for it. And sometimes you won't know the answer why you feel better for it. You just know it was a better experience than staying indoors. And I think every single person can relate to that. So I think if we can keep that going, keep those emotions and those thoughts quite close to the skin, 
I think that's going to definitely get more kids outdoor, outdoorsy and adventurous. I love that because, like, when you look at your social media, you know, like I was showing it to my nephews and they're like, oh my God, it's amazing. I would love to do that. And I was like, that's it. We want to keep that inspiration, that kind of like the the fact that you can do things like that. You just need to figure out, like you're saying, like a creative way to sell it to somebody that can give you the financial support. Do you think there's like a balance between purpose and giving back? Is it best to like find a purpose in life, but also to, you know, do it for charity? You know, find a way of giving back so it's not just a personal thing. It's, uh, you know, you've got that motivation there. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, our first project across the Atlantic certainly would never have happened had it not have been for a spinal injury I had at the age of 17. On that trip, we supported a charity called Spinal Research. And the big thing with these campaigns and adventures when people are trying to do something and raise money for a charity is that there's always a personal connection and to an extent you've got to be slightly not unfortunate but most people that are raising money for a charity have got a, a story that's either directly related or they're very close close they've got a very close story around that so yeah it's it's a difficult one because ultimately you know these charities which do amazing work you don't particularly want because you know cancer research uk or spinal research the reason they exist is because of you know horrible diseases and accidents yet you kind of need them to raise money and awareness so that gives you purpose so i think it's like it's yeah it's a double-edged sword i think on that one it, yeah. It's definitely true for me because I had three grandparents die in the same year. They all had cancer. And when I seen the amazing work that like the Marie Curie people did, yeah. I thought I need to do something to give back to them. And that's when I thought I'll do like a race check money. And they said, oh, we can offer you a skydive. That's how I got into it. And it's like saying it's, I had that personal connection. Yeah. Which is a double-edged sword because you'd rather not have that connection, but then it does give you the purpose. I mean, that's something that I was I was hoping to go into is like, you know, you had that uh, really unfortunate incident, you know, before then you had thought about going and becoming professional sports players, etc. How did that loss of identity, did it affect you at the time? Or do you look back now and think that was really good because it actually helped you propel you towards adventure? Mm. Do you ever sort of lament that loss of, you know, are, are you at peace with that now? Yeah, definitely a piece of it. It definitely formed. I mean, it was definitely the the cornerstone of where we are today. And just in a quick, you know, summary before I get into it, ultimately, if we were, you know, had I not have had my injury and had, let's just say, in you know a wishful thinking world, we went and managed to become, you know, I think we always wanted to become professional rugby players. Um, Dad played for England back in the seventies. So there was always that element that we always wanted to go go on and play rugby at a professional level. But we're 34 now. We would have retired five years ago. And then you're back to square one. Yet the nice thing about where we are now is that it almost feels like we're at the beginning of our careers still. And we can do this for the next 30, 40 years. And you look at Ranulph Fiennes, he's... Kicking you know, us. Yeah. He's, yeah, you know, he's still old, but he's still around. So it's it has given us a huge longevity in terms of career that we otherwise would never have had if we'd 
gone down the rugby route. But, you know, at the time when the accident happened, it was like life was over. You know, sport was everything. And when you're sporty at school, it becomes, you know, and you're good at it. And we weren't very academic. So we never got any kind of good praise or grades in the classroom. Yet when we played sport, it felt good because we knew we were good. Um, so that that aspect, you know, once that's kicked into touch, so to speak, yeah, it's like what what do you what's your focus? Where do you get your drive? What do you what gives you the endorphins to go? Yeah, I want to do that again. You know, we used to play all sorts of sports, but rugby was certainly you know on the top of the list. And you come off the rugby pitch being battered and bruised, and you know that good old feeling of coming off a sports pitch absolutely knackered and that was that's your endorphin hit and then suddenly you can't do it and you're just watching other people so i think everything everything happens for a reason and i don't think we should regret anything that happens in life i don't think and there are certainly things that go wrong in people's lives where there might be more regret than kind of most would desire but you know we're on the island we're on the island yeah the island of earth we are on this planet for a very short time. And I think midlife crisis is what having a midlife crisis kind of backs up that acknowledgement of how short our lives on this planet are. So I don't think we, you should regret anything. We certainly didn't hugs. Yeah. Hug highlighted that. Yeah. There's certain points where it is a little bit difficult, but you do have to find the silver lining. Um, you know, there's always blue sky above and below the clouds. Um, so I think if you can just be positive as much as you can, whatever happens to you, um, I think it's just a it's, it's a really nice thing to to have is that inner positivity, and that might sound a bit wishy washy, but you know things are going to go wrong in everyone's lives. They do. That's just nature. You know, you you. I'd love to meet somebody who's just about to die, who said nothing ever went wrong because I don't think you'll ever get that. So. I think if we can have that mentality of positivity, if something goes wrong, great, everything happens for a reason. How do we overcome? What's the adversity that we need to change? Um, and I think it will just, yeah, it's a positive thing that um, hug broke his neck, even though it was obviously a, a pretty shit thing to do. Um, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Because I do notice that on a lot of people, it's, we, it's almost like we've become a negative society. People really struggle with anything and like you're saying about the midlife crisis you know it's like we die twice in life once when we actually die and once when we realize that we are going to die so then you suddenly panic and start trying to fit all your life into that second half of your life and now i'm coming up to 40 and i'm realizing now that life is short you don't always get the chance to do things and i loved how you were talking about um, alan watts you know like the um you mentioned about the finding purpose in life and doing that how did you find the purpose? Because I think you guys were destined to become these guys who are educating and helping people realize about the world, etc. You know, it almost seems like this is what you were made to do. How yeah, did you it, find that? I mean, I it's, well, it's been a difficult journey, and you know, we've got an older brother and an older sister, and our older brother is always you know, he's done a lot of marketing and business degrees, and we haven't. And so everything he learns and has learned is is through his career and through his his um, education. And 
we're kind of learning on the job and he's always talking about you know us as a brand and what are our values and so he's over the years for his sins is like slightly instilled in us actually you've got to you've got to put your flag in the in the sand somewhere and stand by it and so over the course of 10 years since 2011 2012 which was our first big project I'd say we're still trying to refine what it is we're doing and why we're doing it but you know through his constant right questioning and and trying to ask us in different ways why we do what we do we've slowly you know distilled it down to what it is and why we you know our raison d'etre and it's really sad that we need to do that because ultimately we would love to just go off and do whatever it is that we do and you know like we were kids like why does why does the den need to be that shape and you know does the den need to have a brand logo and that's that's this the the double-edged sword of you know where we are now with our careers is that you can't just go off and do what we want and not think about the consequences you know from a yeah a purposeful side from a professional from a sponsor's partnerships you've really got to think about what it is that people are investing in so people listening you know to this podcast they might go well actually what's the take home from these twins you know why why are they where they are and you know we followed the 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 idea and the concept that we want to learn more about the world and get back to exploration and what that actually means which is understanding and going find going to find something out about the world so it's um it's taken so many different forms and ideas and you know and all we're doing is trying to work out what we're doing it's not as if we've created product or a company that needs its own character and personality and values it's just us and yet even when we're trying to stick stick the tail to ourselves it's yeah it's taken it's taken good 10 years to do i think it's also part of the the appeal of you guys is when we watch your social media we kind of we see the joy and the awe that you have by you know hydroboarding on these like crystal clear lakes or paragliding in the mountains and you know it's like we can we get that inspiration as well to start doing our own thing. We go, well, I want to do that as well. I want to have that high. So sometimes it's good that, you know, that you're letting, you're exploring and we're following along for the journey. How do you start planning for these things? You know, like what was the, the appeal for say the, you know, the poles of inescapability when you're going off, like looking at working with um, universities for looking at the, the amount of plastic in the oceans and stuff like that. How do you start piecing together going on such a, an amazing adventure? You know, what, what have you learned about project management? Like what's essential in life because you can only take a certain amount of kit, et cetera. What, I, what, I, what has I, it taught you? I certainly think planning an expedition comes down to having a, having as hugs mentioned many times, um, having that purpose. And then, finding out it's either what we want to do which is the poles of inaccessibility those projects or you have to kind of balance it up with what brands are looking for that's the commercial side of it you know you could go off and do an absolutely insane trip that doesn't have much sponsorship behind it not much pr coverage at all 
is all self-funded or you could go down a route that's got that commercial endorsement. Um, there's the adventure world is fascinating because I would say the best adventurers out there in whatever environment and discipline those people are experts in, nobody's really ever heard of them. Nobody really knows what they've done because they don't have the PR. That Ranulph Fiennes is very, very, very good at um, putting expeditions together. Maybe not so in recent times um, with actually going on the expeditions. Um, so for us, it's finding what we can sell and what we can go on. Yeah. Um, and then just pulling all the details, keeping an eye on the the big picture. What do we want to achieve? And then you almost go from A to B and pull it back and say, right, what do we need to do? What's the safety? What's the comms situation? What's the logistics? What kit do we need? What qualifications do we need? What time of year do we need to go in? that particular environment is it northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere is it politically safe etc etc and then once you start getting all these um like mid-level um details you then start going to the micro details of what does the first aid kit actually entail in it what do we need is there leishmaniasis is there are there sand flies out in this particular area um and then you start curating all those smaller levels and you keep going down and you keep going down um you get used to it after a while. Um, yeah. Certainly, I think with somebody thinking about going off on a big expedition, having never done one before, that could I can certainly see how that could be quite overwhelming. But we've we've started small and we've worked slowly up to bigger and bigger. We started small crossing the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> now, from my side, I believe it's it's having an end goal that is unique and interesting. And ultimately, then it's then looking and keep that as the end goal, no matter what, if you can. And then it's looking at what makes you unique, what makes this particular trip unique, and then trying to get creative. I think creativity is so undervalued in adventure. It's just trying to get creative and get a storyline and a purpose that builds up around that goal. Um, that you can then start communicating and engaging your audience, your sponsors, your media, because ultimately it's got to be an interesting story and an interesting reason. So, so when you're doing these things, would you reverse engineer, like you're saying, that picking the main goal, picking the story behind it, then you start looking at okay, what what skills do I need here? What equipment do I need? How to find the experts to come in and help with these things? And then you start dialing it down to like, like you're saying, the, like the micro level, and saying, yeah. okay, what's Absol- your kit? Yeah, Absolutely, that's certainly the way we we do it. And we're not an expert in anything we really do, and um, we've got expert experience, um, but we are not experts. And so, whenever we go on a new trip, and most of the time, it's either using a totally different mode of transport that we've never done, whether that's land, air, and sea. And it's an environment we've usually or haven't been in. And to really make a trip successful, you need to find those people who are experts and have experience in those certain locations where you can draw on their rich experience to go, right, what does it mean if this happens or what happens if that goes wrong? How do I get out there? What's the plan B? What's the plan C? And you surround yourself with successful people who are successful in that particular environment. And then that makes your trip much more achievable, 
and manageable because, as I said earlier, these trips, there's a lot going on. And I think at the end of the day, you are going from A to B. You're documenting the journey using science and technology to learn something new, which sounds quite easy. In reality, it is while you're doing it, but it's obviously the the getting there and the getting back that takes a huge amount of work to make a, a project successful. So how do you go about finding these experts? Like, um, you know, like say when you're doing these trips where you're com- comparing like an old, like a historical ex- exploration kit to the modern day kits, you know, are you looking at local universities? Um, how do you find the, like the experts to to come in and look at, you know, like how we can do scientific observations, how we can keep authentic data from these sort of challenges? How how do you go about sourcing? The, I mean, is it the companies that they bring Google. these experts to you? Yeah, no, I I think as many people, I think there's a lot of people that will. Yeah, won't know where to start, and the there's no right or wrong answer, but the the simple right answer is to literally Google it. And there's, I think, lots of people might have an idea that well, I have to find one person that will ultimately help me in the end. Whereas what we really do is ask as many people as we can and see where they all start pointing. You know, there's there's one, you know, people are almost afraid to bother and ask other people to say, hey, look, you're a, a sports physiologist or sports scientist. Um, we've got this idea. What are your thoughts? Can you help? And and really just do some basic research. It doesn't have to be anything fundamentally, um, you know, excruciatingly detailed for months on end, but just find some people that you think look, look right, fit the bill, and have some you might have the experience you're looking for email them call them up and go look i'm planning on doing this and um and see what they say they might say right yeah that i can help that or most of the time they will say well i've got you know colleagues or somebody else at another university can do that and that's that's how we've managed to find people is that you know you do your basic research on google um which isn't too hard for anyone um, and just email around and people are always happy to help. Um, even if they can't help themselves, they're like, well, have, what about you try, you know, department down the road at such and such university. So that's really how we've got it. And, you know, the more conversations you have, the more chance you have of finding somebody that fits the bill and is willing to help you. Yeah, I, I, I certainly echo that. I think the amount of people we've spoken to about a project and they go, oh, I'll connect you with this person who's done that trip. Is, is amazing. You'll be amazed at how many times you'll speak to somebody and you would have had absolutely no idea that they had that intro to that particular person who works in that environment or who could connect you to an expert within that environment. They always say what Facebook is now two degrees of separation. And I think that's um, very, very true when it comes to expedition planning and people in those particular environments is go and ask a question and you'll be connected very very quickly it's time for a quick break there are millions of potential products to buy so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money simple you go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life 
You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. How do you go about like um you know prepping yourself physically for these? Because you know, it's not so much just going and doing and going to these amazing places. These are very hard slogs, you know, like you're carrying a lot of equipment, you're pushing your bodies, you know, you're both you're maybe using older kit that's maybe not as like suitable to the weather conditions, maybe the modern kit is not suitable enough. How do you prepare yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, dietary? to be the athletes that are capable of these things. Rossi, do you want to, oh, Rossi, no, you're, the, no. you're, the, you're the PT. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, <laughs> sorry, that was a big pause. No, I, I think, <laughs> I think the, the mental side, there's the, obviously the mental and the physical, and then everything else comes underneath that. The mental side of these projects, um, getting yourself mentally ready for a project is quite literally getting the expedition to the start line that will give you enough stress and enough belief and enough reality check, shall we say, thoughts that you're ready for it. If somebody said, and they did actually a while ago, maybe three years ago, um, we had an email from a friend of a friend of a cousin who said there's a team out in um, San Francisco at the moment. They've got two places or a place on a rowing boat to row to Hawaii all you need to do is pay for your flights out there next week. Would you say yes or no? And I just said no, because my mind is physically not in the project. I haven't had any time to accept or process that we would be at sea for a good couple of months. And it's the same with an expedition, particularly a large one. If somebody said to me tomorrow, right, you're off to, to Greenland to cross the ice cap. Yes, I could physically do the ice cap, but it's the mental side of it. I have no preparation patience is a very difficult one to teach and the only way of teaching patience is to be patient and that comes I think or gets certainly refined by organizing it and then getting to the start line and that can take many months sometimes so your mind does get fit it does get fitter in preparation for the expedition the physical side again it's you can either get very fit beforehand and enjoy the trip that way, or what most people do, and I think it's the better way, is almost get fit while you're on the expedition, depending on how long it is. If it's a, a month-long expedition, you don't really need to have a huge amount of um, refined fitness. If you've got general fitness, perfect. You can't go wrong. If, yeah. people, if people are racing then yes, there's there's certainly an element of physical preparation that needs to obviously be at a certain level um, to compete. But for 99% of people wanting to go on an expedition, whether it's a, a long weekend or a month-long trip, you'll usually, if you keep yourself generally fit and active, and I'm not saying you need to go on five or six walks or runs a week. I'm just saying you, you're generally fit and healthy. You know, you could do 20 push-ups, 20 sit-ups, and you could probably run a 5K without much training. Um, you'll usually be absolutely fine. 
Um, it's only when the races become, or I say the race, the activity expedition becomes a, a competition. That's when I think you start refining your training and your mental prep. And do you find that, like, it's going back to your previous point of finding people and letting them, you know, like, into you know, introduce you to the next person helps mm. because you can go into a university that says, "Oh, yeah, we can we can teach you how to be physically ready for that. We can help you test your kit." So you're not needing to sort of build yourself. You can let other like these companies and they can introduce you to people who then can teach you the skills and that helps you your knowledge base grow for the next so you use yeah. that learnings there's, yeah. cer- there's cer- sorry there's certainly um a lot of what we do on our expeditions is be curious and try and discover something new love it how many how many people have used the same jacket or the same i don't know running shoes or the same piece of kit or equipment on numerous adventures or expeditions and going well uh, you know I, di- I didn't win this time or you know I was a bit slower that time we've always questioned our kit and we've always had science to try and inform us whether that kit is actually as good for us as we think it is and I think we're lucky because we're genetically identical we can do that we can have that yin and the yang the black and the white see where we differ and go actually that bit of clothing or kit equipment wasn't quite good for us let's stick to this different piece of equipment I think the one thing for people to do is question some of the kit they wear. Just because somebody says, oh, you should wear it, or because you see one of your heroes on a poster wearing it halfway up a mountain, or because it came highly recommended or it was a Christmas present, whatever it is. I think people, again, are efficient. They think, oh, you know, one jacket will do all, and they just they carry on and do it. If it works for you, it works for you. But don't be afraid to change kit up and see if that gets better results. So how do you find that, like, when you're doing these, like, scientific experiments, um, you know, like, has there been something that's really surprised you when you look at the the more historical kit, like the mm. kind of thing Mallory would have worn or, you know, like, um, these are past explorers compared to the people who are, like, climbing Everest and that now? Because I've heard you talk about how that's, you know, you were surprised at how good the the older kits were. You know, yeah. have we made things look, you know, try to go for the bling, try to make it look better, and the older kits were just about functionality? Did you find I, this, something to notice about it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two there's two factors. I think first one is that the kit itself um used in the right conditions and in and within its limitations is absolutely world class. You know, Ross trekked um a good portion of the Green Lice Cap wearing Shackleton's kit that performed, you know, exceptionally well in the conditions down to minus twenty, minus thirty against the new kit. Um, I wore George Mallory's replica kit from his 1924 Everest expedition and I climbed in exactly the same kit from 2000 to um, 5,600 metres and it was exceptional. Um, I think where where the differences are is, is that limitations and admittedly, I think if you're going to compare you know, an old Scottish anorak to, for lack of a better word, in Scotland, you're going to have to deal with waterproofness and the heaviness and the rubbing and things like that. So I could see that being hugely different. Whereas, you know, when you're in a mountain environment, when you're in a polar environment, you don't have rain 
to to consider or worry about you've obviously got moisture and the cooling of the body and the, the wicking um of the materials and performance to worry about but those guys back in you know the early 20th century they really knew how their kit worked and it worked exceptionally well you know you've got you it's not surprising that um shackleton spent is it four or five hundred days down in antarctica and they all survived you know what yes they had incredible resilience and drive to survive but you also got to acknowledge the kit kept them alive as well and mm. I, th- I think there's a huge disconnect between you know these these really bright colored you know almost fashionable garments that you're now seeing up on everest and in the polar regions um to what they used to wear in the day and the second point i think is the mindset because people can now buy a fifty thousand pound ticket up everest they think well i've i've spent 50 grand on a guide and a team of sherpas um and i've spent several thousand on you know the latest down suits and plastic mountaineering uh shoes and things like that they expect to just get up there like it's a uh, you know a, a, a tourist visit and that was the big difference i think is the kit was certainly as good you know it was certainly um delivers the performance but their mindset was not expecting anything easy they weren't expecting an easy ride and i think those two elements are where you get the biggest uh difference oh, was that what you sort of learned from this sort of like reenacting the yeah what these top performers have done that you know it is was that was the biggest insight do you think that yeah. these guys planned to go through hell to get through these things where nowadays it's almost like we're, we're planning for comfort yeah yeah absolutely mindset was everything and we've both done the old and the new and it's amazing what that mindset does and you know i, I you know you can probably read thousands and thousands of articles about how mindset is so important mm-hmm. going said, into going to any any challenging environment i certainly think the food side of it so just to give you a quick quick overview for the listeners who were, aren't aware of what we did so in 2014 we we trekked from the west coast of greenland to the east coast i was wearing shackleton's kit from his 1914 1917 imperial transantarctic expedition so woolly pulleys plus 10 tweed trousers, leather boots, wooden skis, bamboo poles, a wooden nine-foot Nansen sled, including um, consuming and eating his um, food from the 1909 expedition he did previous to the Imperial Transantarctic expedition. And we found out through science that the food was much better 100 years ago than it is today because today is modern expedition and ration packs which is high calories high carbs and high sugar whereas back in the day it was you could get your high calories but you had to eat a lot more of it but the most important thing was it was high fat and high protein which kept you far more satiated Um, and that was again one of the biggest surprises I think a lot of people expect because you're buying let's just say a seven eight pound 150 gram space-like food for an expedition it's 
absolutely everything you need and nobody really needs to question it. And that's exactly what we did. And we found out that, the, you know, I, I would strongly, if I went back to Greenland, I really wouldn't go with um, expedition ration packs. I'd probably go and look at creating my own food. I love that. I love the way it's like we realize that, you know, these guys weren't just struggling. They were, they were on to things. You know, they had really thought about what they were doing, about what they were eating and stuff like that. And I think we have tried to polish something up now we've kind of gone the wrong way at times you you've talked about the the importance of humphrey walters you know about his how his tools of not letting arguments come in now if i went like in a long hike for a month with my brother probably only one of us are coming back how do you guys keep that going you know how do you stop avoiding arguments and things you know because you know you're doing it for a is it because you know you're doing the challenge that you're raising money for charity that you're is it the joy of doing the challenge? How do you keep putting that foot in front of the other foot when you're soaking wet, you're cold, you're tired? You know, you've got to keep motivated to take for the next, like, um, data collection, etc. When you're really struggling, how do you keep that mindset? Is it just the, the joy of what you're doing overrides the, the, the short-term misery of it at times? Okay. There's, I think there's a life's very simple on an expedition and the amount of time and effort you put into it, having that simplicity um, while you're on an expedition, when life does get tough, it's quite easy just to put your head down, drive on through and look at where you're going. Um, certainly, depending on where you go, the view is much better than other places. Um, but it's it's a very, very re- rewarding um experience when you have to really battle against the elements people will often say what's it like wearing shackleton's kit in greenland or what's it like wearing george mallory's kit um on mount elbrus in russia and we we, you know we just say describe the color red it's your own expression. It's your own take on it. It's a bit like green, but not brown. And until you experience that, it's very, very difficult to convey that um, that emotion of how do you keep walking? And you, you do, you know. We, you, if a trip is long enough, it becomes almost like breathing. You don't think about it. Even though there's loads going on, stuff might be going wrong, the environment might be pushing, pr- putting pressure on you, the I don't know people locals might be putting pressure on you you might be feeling uncomfortable but expeditions are so lovely and everyone says oh you know it must be the toughest part of your job no the toughest part is putting the project together the great thing is being on an expedition you can just strip away all the technology yes we have cameras and we do document it now and again but life is so wonderfully simple on an expedition I love it you use like these trips to compare kits or collect research data and things like that how can somebody listening like review an expedition so that it change it helps them grow and like you know want to go and find something else have you found a way to kind of review a trip and like does it help you does it change you as a person does it like let you know learn about world cultures people have you grown as, pe- as as men and as brothers during these times? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, you know, you come off every every trip learning certainly a lot about yourself, and as time goes on, 
you know we we you know I've certainly found that you you learn different things about yourself on different trips and and ultimately you're learning there's a huge learning curve you know on every trip you do um whether that's technological um or physiological you know we're getting older now we're at 34 so you know the, the the body takes a bit longer to recover and getting in and out of our hydrogen boat this this summer was you know we, we didn't even have a door it just had a hatch so the knees are going um but you know you, you've just got you know one thing that we really enjoy is coming off these trips is you, know, you learn so much about the you know the hydrogen fuel cell that we've been testing this summer you learn about or recognize and appreciate how much plastic is is in our ocean you learn actually how convenient or inconvenient using an electric motorbike around scotland in winter is um you know you you don't think about it when you probably might think about if anyone's ever bought an electric motorbike you've got let's just say 200 mile range whereas scotland in the middle of winter is below freezing the battery's probably got half the distance so it's those little things that you learn and you take away and you think you couldn't get that knowledge in a brochure you couldn't get it from a salesman you couldn't you know read up about it until somebody's actually gone and got you know done it so certainly your perception changes and i think that's just down to education i remember what giving one example was in south america and bolivia we were going past all these villages towns arguably the cities and nothing was finished. No building was complete. All these steel poles sticking out through the roofs. And we we honestly, we, we chatted for days as we were um, cycle touring, going, God, the poverty out here, it's horrible, isn't it? Nobody's Nobody can finish any of their houses. And then we spoke to a German who was spending, I don't know, it was six months or so cycling from Costa Rica down to Ushuaia in Patagonia. And he was very, very um, seasoned in terms of cycling around Bolivia. And we said to him, look, it's so sad that all these buildings aren't finished. And he was like, no, no, no. It's because the locals get taxed on buildings that are complete. So they just leave them incomplete. And instantly you looked at an entire village, town, city that we thought was run down, poverty stricken into, oh, actually these guys are educated and informed and know what they're doing because they haven't finished all their buildings because they don't want to spend the tax. And it totally changed our perception of Bolivia. And I think once you get into the psyche of not everything is as it seems and you learn, you do, you do end up taking these examples away from all these expeditions into general life. Because I interviewed uh, Jonas Diekman, who did who did a uh, Ironman around the world. Like he just kept repeating the cycling, the running, the etc uh, the swimming and that's what he said is when he told people like he had gone through running through mexico for example people were like oh that's dangerous you'd have been the cartels would have kidnapped you and that and he said there's nothing but you know the there are people from all the villages were coming out and running with them and everybody's happy bringing them food and you know it, it was just joyous to see people like a person coming into their town and stuff and yeah. he said it completely changed like your insight into the world of how people view stuff you know and do you find that as part of the joy of your your trips educating people on to 
like what's happening with the world and kind of showcasing these amazing places that a lot of people don't even know exist in our planet. Yeah, I think yeah. it's uh, certainly changing that perception, um, particularly now, I think over the last five years, our, um, the, the purpose of our expeditions has all been about pushing the boundaries of sustainability um, using technology and science. And I think the biggest lesson we've learned is what brand, I say what products offer isn't usually what reality actually gives you. So for instance, um, I, in layman's terms, when you buy a new car, they say it does, it'll do 50 miles to the gallon, but in reality, it'll do 30. And I think it's exactly the same what we're finding with all these sustainable products that we're using to push the boundaries of our expeditions is that they say one thing, but delivers another. And I think it's a stark reminder that, yes, we're on the right path, I think, you know, with COP27 going on or just finishing, there is certainly this joint ambition to be more sustainable. But I think a lot of what people say underachieves and underdelivers, which is the, I think, the sad reality of where we are in the world. I mean, how do you implement or like where did your interest for conservation come from? I mean, I come from the Highlands and, you know, you would see tides of rubbish washing up on the beaches. People would be throwing stuff at boats or, you know, leaving their crap on the beach when they had their picnics and stuff like that. I mean, especially during COVID, we had a lot of rough campers who would come yeah. up and throw stuff at it, you know, just leave stuff because they couldn't carry it back. Do you see more and more now that there are like more people are open to the options of like hydrofuel cells like you know how do you start selling these alternatives to people who have always had like you know diesel powered boats and engines how do we start is, is there more money available do you think now into research into alternative methods like this yeah i mean lots lots and lots of uh well uh, certainly in the last few years the investment into green technology development and research has massively grown and it continues to grow. Um, but there's going to be, you know, you need these early years of R&D to work out, firstly, the limitations of the technology and secondly, how it can be implemented into, um, you know, into everyday life. With the um, project we did recently this year, on our electric yacht yes it had a fuel cell but it needed a fuel cell because the the range of the battery um the the motor and the batteries didn't perform as we obviously couldn't motor us as far as far as a diesel engine could and that was just the limitations and it was unbelievably frustrating thinking right well we've got the latest uh, electric motor battery technology we'd taken out the diesel engine and replaced the whole thing with this with, the, with this new system so our mindset was like right well it should just operate exactly the same as a diesel you know we should be able to do uh you know 2000 revs for you know several hundred miles and that's not the case so there is going to be this adjustment period where it's going to be we're going to have to take a couple steps forward one step back and work out how the technology in reality works with our everyday lives now, because ultimately the technology, the, these greener technologies aren't going to be as 
convenient to use as let's say our their fossil fuel cousins you know we couldn't go for hundreds of miles we could we could do about 20 miles um on the whole system which is a huge mindset change in it you definitely have to sail differently so yes it was a sailing boat but obviously getting in and out of port we use an engine now obviously you've only got a certain amount of miles to get in and out of any port or harbor which if you if you lose the wind and you're further than 20 30 miles away that's going to present some massive issues whereas if you had a diesel engine you could go for several hundred miles and it's not an issue so it's these little mind changes that we all need to adopt and hopefully by you know finding out what works and understanding actually how convenient are these new technologies to implement and utilize in our everyday lives we can then start working off that and then improve it no that's a great answer because you know that's the beauty of now is we are discovering this i mean i one of my colleagues in the university was part of um the cop you know um like uh, conference and getting people in and that's what they're saying. It's like a lot of this is we are working on this. It's not perfect now, we but we are getting there. We are making these alternatives, yeah. and we we can't keep going the way we're going. You know, you see like the Apple on Twitter when you suggest like we're causing the problems, and it's no, we're not. It's not man-made. It's a government conspiracy. All these sort of silly things, and thinking, but you go and to half the places you're going, and you see the damage we're doing to the the environments, the ecosystems, to the wildlife. And that's why I think it's great that you're showcasing these things, but you're also showcasing the issues of these technologies and how we're testing these to make them better. You know, you're showing people that things can go wrong in challenges. Do you think like that's like a, a skill to have? It's the ability to think on the fly, to look at and you know problem solve in real time. What other skills do you think people need? like or could work on to become better adventurers and explorers in their world i think being having a a mindset of failure i think is absolutely fine if you want to head out on an expedition and don't succeed that's absolutely fine i think people have become very afraid of failing if we we always have a plan b and a plan c on our expeditions um we sadly had to get airlifted off the green and ice cap and we implemented plan B, which was our emergency helicopter rescue. Perfect. You know, it wasn't a failure. And I, and I think a, a really good skill. But the Americans have it very well. Their mindset is if you fail at a business, great. Come on board because you've learned something. In the UK, and I'm not sure about Europe, but particularly in the UK, if you fail at something, it's like, oh, you're not very good yeah. at that. It's a bit taboo. Yeah. Um, Especially if you're men, it's like a blight against your masculinity. Yeah, it's almost like don't try just in case you fail, which is yeah. sad. Yeah, but I I, th- I think you know another important skill which is on that similar vein is is you know being flexible and listening to people. You know, how many times have you heard somebody go going against local advice, medical advice, and then the inevitable happens? Um, you know, we have a saying that the strongest tree in the forest is the most flexible. You know, why is it that palm trees always survive after hurricanes in Florida? It's because they bend and they ebb and flow with the wind. Love when it. we were in 
South America in 2017, trying to reach the pole of inaccessibility down there. We were in the Pantanal, which is wow, yeah, um, all the low-lying, swampy wetlands in between Bolivia and Brazil. And we we heard news that there was a British woman who I think was kayaking the length of one of the tributaries of the Amazon. Only the week before, she she died very sadly or was murdered by locals. And then you start hearing that, you know, that the villages that she met and local reports are saying that actually lots of people told her that it was dangerous to continue and that she should you know seek local help to get around this this you know, dangerous area where there were drug cartels and sadly and ultimately you know it appears that she didn't listen to the locals and was just so gun her about sticking to her original plan um you know you can always go back and do these things again and it's you know like life you know i think we've all all got a life plan yet how many of us have actually stuck to our 15 year old life plan none of us you know i think just having some flexibility and accepting that things aren't going to go your way is is a, is a real credit to have um you know you you've said that you are like half a brain each you know you have that twin <laughs> bond right. together. um i love that like you were sort of like you said that you know you create this ident- entity that um uh, you were half a brain and you worked well together because you formed like a one entity. And I was thinking that is such a great way of looking at it. You know, we have friends like that where they kind of, you know, it's like you just make each other better people from it. And you've worked with some amazing companies, these amazing people like on your explorations, etc. What have you learned about building great friendship, you know, great relationships, making great teams? How, you know, how do we get not so much just, like the great shots, the the achieved adventure, but actually grow, you know, like make memories because you guys are always smiling, you're also happy in your trips, and you know, like you have this amazing brother bond. How how can we create that with the people that we're going on these trips with? I certainly, well, I certainly think you understand when meeting somebody for the first time, you understand what they're going to be like, whether you're going to enjoy them within the first few minutes. And and I know that sounds obvious and it's been said many times before, you know, oh, I got a good vibes from that person walked in. Yeah, she or he were really cool. Trust your instinct. We've we've done enough expeditions on trips where we've we've met guides, particularly that have wanted to come on a trip and we've gone, nah, instantly didn't get on with them and we knew there'd be a problem. And we've had guides before that we haven't really got on with, even though our gut at the very beginning said, mm, shouldn't really go with them. Um, so I think you can certainly go with your gut feeling, um, and that certainly creates a, a better environment. And you and you have to be honest. There's certainly times when it's hard to say no to somebody, but if you yeah. don't, if you don't get on with them, but it's also just looking at you know why why somebody is there at that moment. What 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 are they in it for? Are they trying? You know, are they fundamentally they just love being outside, love love the outdoors, and they live and breathe it, and that's their profession? Or um, are they from a media side that's got the relevant experience in the environment you've got, 
you know, it, it's all, you get these different characters and they have different reasons for being there. And yeah, we've certainly, certainly had some interesting people, whereas actually, you know, some, some people that we've been with aren't adventurers at all. They just know the local area and they're absolutely fine, you know, with just helping where they can and where their skill sets lie. Whereas others, um, have slightly forgotten why they're there and they go off on their own, their own kind of trip within the trip as it were. And they want to, they've got their own itinerary and they've got the, their own idea of what they want to do on it. So when you don't get, well, when you're with somebody that's not completely aligned and appreciates the end goal and how you're going to get there and why you want to get there, that's when it suddenly gets a bit, Oh, this is quite interesting because actually they've got a completely different itinerary, whether they, you know, whether they've you know, um, deliberately decided to do that or whether it's just in their nature and, and they got the wrong end of the stick and the idea. But, yeah, you've certainly got to, you know, have somebody that's, you know, similar mindset is there for all the same reasons. Um, that certainly is, um, you know. Uh, we've, we've, we've all done, we've all been on trips, um, whether it's a day trip or longer, with people we don't enjoy being on that trip with. And I think when we when we get older, we're we're allowed the um, we can allow experience to come in and go. Actually, why are you going on that trip with that particular person? Um, and so you know, get rid of them um, to to make the most of it. And yes, that's going to be harsh sometimes, but there's no point in two people not enjoying a trip. One of you might as well enjoy it, and the other person plans another trip on their own time. Well, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's like doing it, and getting the experience, and learning from it, and you start picking up on the signs that you know, like that person. It's like for any project, I suppose they're not going to be a good team member, and you've got to enjoy these things. You know, I noticed like in a lot of your interviews, they would all people would always ask you about like what's it like being with your twin, etc. I mean, I know that's your part of your brand, and I know that's like a really interesting part of it. But has there been something about your trips? that you wished more people would ask about? You know, is there an environmental plight that really hit home that you wish more people knew about? Or is there a part of, an, a, you know, an adventure that you've been on that you thought, wow, that that would be life-changing if more people seen it? What, yeah. what do you wish people knew more about? Or what what has really blown your mind about some of these amazing things you've done? I, for I me, think, oh, Ross, you go. I think, I think the lack of... Um, the lack of sustainability questions, maybe. Yes, a lot of what we're trying to do um, in recent expeditions is push those boundaries. Um, but there's no real uptake. There's no real, yes, how do I get involved with that? Like, how do I push that um, to the next level? How can I get hold of that product? Um, and going back to your question earlier, when you said, um, you mentioned that some people are, oh, you know, sustainability, you know, it's a load of load of bs that you know it's it's a natural process the world's going through and we've met many of those people who don't believe in global warming or are a bit skeptical and yes admittedly there's a lot of people out there um and all i would say to those people is that well why don't we push the boundaries of sustainability because it's only going to make our world a healthier place to live and there's no there's zero wrong answers with that you know, there's a reason why people in China and India, some of those horrendous images, you can't see anything because the air quality is so bad. You know, what, what's the harm in us saying, 
global warming's happening, the world's heating up, let's be more sustainable. Even if you don't believe that, the result is a healthier place to live. I, I, yeah, that's what I would say is people need to, I think people need to be a little bit more gung-ho with some questions, be a little bit more ballsy as well. I certainly wouldn't um, say no to a bit more of an argument with people saying, oh, you know, you, you fly to these locations. Why is that important? You know, you should be saving that the carbon dioxide from your airplane ticket and, and using, you know, dare I say, podcasts or something that has less of a footprint to communicate your um, your story and your message. And I, yeah, I totally agree. But, you know, sometimes we need to go to these places to capture that data to then tell that um, informed decision. And it's to educate people. Like, how many people aren't aware of, like, how somebody in China is dealing with, like, smog and, you know, like, dealing with, like, the hardships they have or the, the, the tribes in this country or that country? You know, you have to shine a light on it to make people aware of it. Yeah, I think so many people recently um, have said, oh, it's ridiculous why all these presidents and prime ministers are flying into Bali all over the world. This is outrageous. Well, no, it's one person representing half a billion people there. It's one person representing 50 million people there. It's not that bad when it's one person that is telling a story that millions, arguably billions of people are going to benefit from. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a really interesting five years ahead, I think, particularly with um, emissions, particularly with sustainability and that kind of the millennials, Generation Z, becoming old enough to actually be able to, um, I say give a give a crap, that's the wrong word, but come into um, positions of power. You look at Greta Thunberg, when she first arrived on the scene, she was, what, 12 years old? She's now 19. It's going to yeah. be mad. It's going to be mad what the next five years are going to be like. I think you're going to see a huge amount more um, protests all over the world at much, much larger scale than we've ever seen. Um, Hugo, what do you think? Yeah, I, I actually, um, one of the most profound things on on certainly um, Australia, Greenland, was actually how pristine the, the, the very remote locations we reached are. Um, and that's not to say the whole trip or all the environment that we go to is pristine, but there were some times in the middle of the outback that really hadn't been touched. Um, and seeing that from the air, firstly, obviously makes it even more dramatic. But you're driving through these locations which haven't changed for mil millennia. Um, you know, People to actually see true wilderness is a really, really stark reminder of how much of an impact we have had on the planet. Um, when we were at the top of the, the glacier in Greenland on the east coast where we started, sorry, west coast where we started, um, it took us three days to get um, over the crevasse fields. And then we were on the, the ice cap. And that first night we were on the ice cap, we had views down to the coast and over the crevasse field. And then on the other side, we had the endless sight of the ice cap that we were about to head across. And those two moments in the outback and on Greenland were some of the purest wilderness I think we will ever see in our lives. Yet in stark contrast to that, the the centre point of 
the South America or South American Pole of Inaccessibility. It's got farmland in. So this is the most, arguably the most remote point in the Amazon, Brazil, South America, title it how you want. This is the most remote point, yet it was farmland. The whole thing was farmland. And that was a hugely frightening concept that, you know, we've reached all these most inaccessible points, and yet, you know, where, where's it going to stop? So I think, you know, if people can see, you know, environments that are completely untouched, it's a very powerful thing to see because really the contrast is our cities, is our own countries um, to run parallel. It's something weird, isn't it, that we have this amazing tool in our pocket where we can learn from every top mind in the world we can see all these amazing things and we watch like cat videos and things like that and argue with other people online you know and it's there was a lot of times i was listening to some of the interviews you'd done and i was desperate for the interviewer to ask you about what what inspired you you know what blew your mind and people were like they kept asking the same questions and I was thinking you have some of these you have these great guys who have done these amazing things and we're very like humans we're very driven by stories you know we we inspire we learn we educate through stories and like i was just blown away listening to your answers thinking i want to see that i want to do that now i want to go and you know like really push more about recycling and like sustainability and things like that and i think that sometimes it's the interviewer's fault for not pushing that in a way like how do we start educating more people about sustainability, about what we're going to need to do in the next 50 years. You know, I mean, apart from like doing the amazing work you're doing, how, I, how do you want to get involved with schools and things like that? Yeah, we, we've, we've been involved with schools in the, the, the project that we went on in the summer on this um, sailing expedition resulted in, a, in a, ten, a tour of 10 cities across the UK going into schools, organising beach cleans around these local the local areas in all these different cities but fundamentally it's you know we can chat about it and we can chat about it until the cows come home but for us if we can just show people and normalize these technologies and that was a big a big aspect of our last project was trying to normalize the use of hydrogen we all think it's about the future and you know 20 years time we're all going to be in hydrogen cars but there's this complete disconnect with the future and today and what the project, one of the, the aims of the project was all about normalizing hydrogen and normalizing these future technologies because the future needs to be today. And that's how we're going to make you know the, the, the fastest amount of progress to become greener. So, yeah, you know, for us, we we do go in and talk about our trips and touch on it. And on the sustainability side and and what we've learned but ultimately the underlying lining message is that actually hydrogen fuel cell technology is here it's with us today we've been using it to power a yacht uh, we've been using it to power all the different events that we've had so in each city we've set up a marquee or a, a small gazebo type tent we've got you know 52 at 252 inch tvs we've got speaker systems we've got these all these event you know um items that we've taken around the uk and they've all been running on hydrogen fuel cells and it's we want to show people that 
you know, it's here. Like, don't don't think that technology is in the future that will save us. The, probably the technology that will save us in the future is here today. Yeah, it's just been so worked. It's like I think the things like you know, the beach clean videos you do are phenomenal because a lot of people only see their world, you know, their office, their their coffee shop, etc. Like, you know, you were showing like how the boats you have like recycled plastic bottles to, to you know you turn that into ropes about how you're using the hydrogen fuel cells to some people that might be a bit out there but to show them like a couple of bags of rubbish that you've picked up on their local beach brings it home to them you know and it i, I loved that series that you did and i'm so gutted that i i couldn't get to meet you because i felt like you're the sort of people i could sit and listen to t- and talk about it for hours and you know like i probably butchered half my questions because i I've got so many things I want to talk about, but I just find the stuff you do amazing, you know, and you're just getting started and you're going to be like Ralph Fiennes, David Attenborough, everybody like mixed into one. Well, that's what? very kind of you to say, but I don't, it doesn't feel that way. It's an uphill battle every, every year. <laughs> so what... the, most, the most important thing for us is to, to just pass the pass knowledge on. And I think the more we can talk about sustainability, whether it's right or wrong, hopefully that means the more people will be informed, more people will start questioning it, refine it. And, you know, that's how the education process, I think, for the next five, ten years is going to go with um, with sustainability. Particularly, I say the chat about um, cars at the moment, electric vehicles are far more sustainable. Are they? Are they not? I'm a firm believer they're not at all. Um, there's lots and lots of evidence that say they are. There's lots and lots that say it isn't. So I think the more we can chat about it, the more we can say, is sustainability working? Are these products or services um, or brands being more sustainable? And whether it's right or wrong, hopefully more right than wrong, you know, it's just going to create a great debate, discussions, and it's going to curate and get refined. And hopefully... In the coming years, people are going to become more and more informed. And then before we know it, we're going to have such a sustainable way of living. We don't even need to think about it. It just is. So is that what you guys want to do for the next like, 30, 40 years, like the evolution of your brand, is to just keep making like videos, talking to people, you know, starting the conversations, opening people's eyes towards yeah. things? Yeah, absolutely. I I remember the first time I ever watched a 3D movie. It was Avatar, was it back in 2009-2010? And you always remember that first experience of something. And if we can if we can be people's first touch point on various technologies and these points, you know, of knowledge that we hopefully can find. And we don't know what they're all going to be in the future, but if if we can, the more we find, the more it will have that, In it will be more impactful because people will be like, oh, that's the first time I've actually seen a fuel cell that can do that. I didn't realize that was there or, oh, I didn't realize there were these poles of inaccessibility. And so it's just, it's just having that, it's, that punchline, that, you know, that bit of information where somebody's like, oh, actually, I didn't know that. And if that, and the more of those we can build up over the years, then... You know, that's ultimately what I want to aim for. I also want to find, you know, Randall Fiennes found that city, lost city in, um, you know, the Middle East. I want to go and find a lost city. I want to go and find Atlantis or something. I love it. I mean, I, I loved one interview where you were talking about, like, the nine like, poles of inescapability, and he said, I thought there was only two. 
You know, and it was just like, I think that's the beauty of what you're yeah. doing. You're, you are educating people that you're showcasing these, like all these amazing things on the earth. And, you know, it's like, we should be looking after the world so we can actually get to a point where we can all enjoy them and visit them and stuff like that. What was it about the, the poles of inescapability that attracted you, you know, and how were you sort of working towards, I think you've, is it three or four you've achieved? How, yeah. how, how do you want to keep going at them? We've, um, we've achieved um, four, um, the last um, Atlantic pole of inaccessibility we didn't make because of the limitations of the sustainable electric engine, which was a real shame, but we're not there to find our, you know, or operate within our limitations. We're there to push the boundaries. And if that means failure, then fantastic. It means we've pushed the boundaries of sustainability and we're able to put a line in the sand for other projects to build on. Um, and I think for us, it's really important that we have a long-term, genuine expedition series that nobody else has done that's achievable, but also we can be curious on. We can discover something through science and technology, and they're all purpose-led. Um, all the expeditions on the Poles of Inaccessibility series that we've done has always had a sustainable purpose, more so now than ever before. Um, and that's only because it seems right. There's there's too much in the world going on for us not to care. And the analogy or metaphor I use is there's two frogs. One frog you can put into boiling water and it'll jump right out. Or you can put a frog into cold water and bring it up to the boil and it'll boil alive. Mm -hmm. And we are quite literally that second frog. The, the world's heating up slowly and nobody's really giving a crap. Yes, they are, but you, you know, for this, for the sake of the metaphor, um, and we just don't want to be that second frog. So for us, it's all about pushing the boundaries, and rather than um, pushing brands to be more sustainable or be more environmentally focused, we want to, you know, we want to drag everyone behind us. We don't want to be pushing people. We want to be at the forefront of this. Movement's not the right word because movement's probably too much for two people to do. But we want to be at the forefront of um, the adventurer world where people can go, oh, these, these guys are kind of the dominant um, adventurers within the sustainable world of adventuring. I think you're definitely starting to shape brands. You know, you've got things like Land Rover, Brightland Watches and all these, you know, these companies that you would think maybe try to avoid pushing in towards like sustainability, but they're realizing the importance of it and the technology that can benefit them as well. And I mean, you guys deserve a show on Netflix. So like, you know, your videos are amazing. The documentaries you do on like vegan versus like I was going to say normal food. That would get my cousin to beat my ass because she's a vegan. But you know, I mean, like you, you're educating people and you're showing the alternatives and the need for it. It's not just the alternatives because it'd be nice to do them. We're going to need them in the next 10, 20 years. And you, you know, you guys deserve much more credit for what you're, than you're getting. You should have your series on Netflix. You should be on TV all the time. Talk about, we make people like the Kardashians and all that like the center and i think that's what people are beginning to realize is we need to be thinking more about our planet and what we're doing to it and people are waking up to it 
and it's thanks to you guys who are like, doing stuff like this. You know, you Ralph Fiennes, um, you've got like Ross Edgeley, people like doing all these sort of conservation trips and that, and they're actually people are beginning to realise it's like the damage we're doing to the planet. Mm. I wish you were the commissioner of Netflix. It'd be great. It'd be quite an easy. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I, mean, I think ultimately this is where we want to go is is down the TV route because we can then reach a uh, a curated larger audience with our purpose, with our message, um, which isn't a, a preachy one. It's just through the science and technology we've done on all of our trips, particularly the old and new. Obviously, there's a sustainability thread there because the old kit is arguably better and it's all natural materials. Um, you know, we do want to to start questioning um, the world on a bigger scale. And I think a lot of people who um, we talk to about our old versus new trips and particularly our sustainable expeditions most recently, it is they, they do genuinely take away something new and go, oh, I, I never knew that. So, you know, it'd be great to do that on a bigger scale. I'm surprised companies aren't like snapping at you to say like, oh, this would be amazing. You know, we can feature our products here. We can do this. You can showcase these things. Because like, you know, look at um, Beer Grills. People like people are now like learning survival skills without really knowing that they've learned it because they've watched his videos. Yes, he does drink his own piss, but <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, he, he got married up at a local beach um up towards where I'm originally from and he said something you know it's every time he goes back he's amazed at how beautiful it is how clean it is compared to a lot of the more mainstream beaches he goes to why yeah. why are we not making that as a standard you know why is that a, it, it's sad that that becomes a surprise when it should yeah. be norm I think it's habit isn't it we're all creatures of habit um we're efficient we're I think we're inherently lazy um, I think just probably more through evolution than anything else. Um, you know, dog doesn't take itself for a walk. Um, so, you know, all the beach cleans that we did um, around the UK, certainly there were definitely themes and different types of plastic, depending on where we were. Um, Glasgow was very bottle heavy, whereas Newcastle was incredibly... Um, was incredibly wet wipe heavy lots of wet wipes on the beaches around newcastle yet glasgow was more bottled so you know it's just going to be habit you know it's like our parents your parents anyone's parents telling them to do something differently that you know it's just just takes time Somebody, Um, somebody leaves it to somebody else the whole time you know you see plastic bottles on the side of the road in London. And yes, admittedly, most of the time the streets are, are swept regularly. So that will hopefully end up. But nobody really picks it up. And it's the same on a beach. You, everyone thinks, oh, you know, somebody's probably paid to pick it up once a week or whatever it is. But you know, if, if we can treat the world like, a, like our local neighbourhood, particularly people, I say people in Scotland, people who live outside of a city, if they genuinely see rubbish on the side of the road in a field on a national park they'll pick it up because it's their own environment it's their backyard so to speak and they care for it whereas we've kind of lost that local connection to where we live everyone thinks oh somebody else will do it and i think we'd live in a much much better healthier environment if everyone treated um all these big cities areas that they've never been to like their local home i love it i love how the idea of treating the world like your back door like you're like looking at your own garden stuff and is a beautiful way to look at it 
And I mean, I could talk to you guys for hours, and I, I, I apologize we're way over our time limit, but what, until I can get you back on and we can go into other things, I mean, I hope you've, it's been an amazing experience to have you on. And I definitely mixed up some questions. You know, like I probably asked them badly because I was like a bit starstruck. Because I think you you are doing amazing work. You are changing lives, and you are getting people, especially the young people, aware of the situations. And like you're saying, is you're motivating people to be adventurous. And just by them becoming adventurous in their life, they become maybe better people. They learn about things. They maybe challenge things, and they help charities. And if we all even just did a wee bit more to help each other i think it would change lives and but until i can get you back on if you want to come back on that obviously is what would you want people to learn from this like if you had a message for people to going forward you know like it could be one to five points it could be just a reminder what would you want them to take from this one percent change every day that's what we've been um talking while we've been doing our uk tour post our um hydrogen sale is we're not saying to everybody change 100% because you're all doing a terrible job at being more sustainable. What we've said the whole way round is do one thing different every day that's more positive for the environment, that's beneficial and more sustainable. Whether that's opting from black bin liners to compostable and biodegradable green bin liners whether that's going for a bamboo-based toothbrush from a battery or plastic toothbrush. If you can do one thing or change one thing every day or maybe every week and stick to it, that compound effect is going to be astronomically beneficial to the world. And that's all we say. Just change one thing. Turn the tap off earlier. Turn the lights off sooner. My uh, my parting words of wisdom would be um whatever your dreams and goals double it and there's a, there's a longer story in that but um that's somebody said to us uh this year they said you know where do you want to go what do you want to do how do you want to get there and we told them and then as you know as simple as it is he just said right double it double your dreams so that's what i would say and that, that links to your mom's dream on mentality, you know that. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great way to look at life. And for until you know, like until we see you on Netflix and TV and stuff like that, how can people keep in touch? How can we follow you on social media? Find your website, you know, um, contribute to the like finances the, and stuff. So we uh we've got a website. So if you just type into Google the Turner Twins, you'll find all our social channels and our website with all our latest videos and films. So it's just the Turner Twins or Turner Twins. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking, 
the next level in your life.